0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week is proof that everyone deserves a second chance. (laughs) Our guest is Ellen Datlow, Queen of Editors and Doyen of Horror Anthologies, and she's graciously come back to speak to me after I lost the file the first time around. That mishap turned out to be a blessing in disguise, because between then and now, I've got better at doing this, And Ellen's released a whole stack of books that I couldn't wait to ask her about, including the recent Body Shocks anthology of extreme body horror. And When Things Get Dark, an anthology of stories inspired by the work of Shirley Jackson. Amongst other things, we talk about how she gets the ideas for her anthologies and how she gets them made. We cover her career in the field of horror editing and how she's honed her skills and and how she decides what makes the cut and what gets cut. There are plenty of names mentioned, some well established and and many that you may want to look out for in the future. So this is a must listen for anyone who's interested in the current state of horror fiction. But of course, that's you, isn't it? Because if you've come this far, then you're not leaving now. So here we go, to a butt-lined apartment in New York City. It's where the magic happens. Let's talk scared. Hi, Ellen, and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you?
1: I'm fine, and thank you for having me on. It's a real pleasure to meet you again.
0: (laughs) Again, being the operative word, um, (laughs) this is not the first time we've spoken. As I've mentioned before, you you were actually the first person I I ever interviewed for Talking Scared back when I had even less of an idea of what I was doing than I do now. Uh, And you very graciously agreed to speak to this nobody from the north of England. We had a great chat and then I lost the file.
1: Well, it's a good thing I have a lousy memory because I can't remember anything we talked about.
0: <laughs> I, I'm not very memorable, so that's, that's fine. <laughs> um, it took me over a year to kind of summon the courage to reach back out to you. And, and then even more graciously, you, you've come back on to give me another chance. This time I'm going to ironclad the file so that nothing can go wrong. But it, it is actually great timing to have you back on the show because even for an editor as prolific as you, this has been kind of a bumper year. You've had your anthology of extreme body horror. Yes. You've got volume 13 of the annual best of the year collection. And you actually published my favorite anthology of the year, which is When Things Get Dark, stories inspired by Shirley Jackson.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really pleased that you like that one. I'm really happy about that. Thank you.
0: I love it. And I've got I've got questions because I, I found both the subject matter and the individual stories and the approach really interesting. But before we get into that, considering all the things you've done this year, how do you find the time to do all the reading?
1: Well, the worst part is for the year's best. I mean, that's the one that always takes backseat yet is an ongoing project that I have to work on constantly. I mean, I don't ever really get a break. I mean, maybe in April I stop. Reading Years Best, like for a few weeks. But <clears throat> basically, that's the one that kills me. The others are nothing comparatively. I mean, don't forget a reprint anthology like Body Shocks is e- at least I don't have to edit the stories, and the same with Best Horror. But reprinting theme anthologies, in a way, it's almost a break because I don't know what I'm going to use from the start, although I may have a few ideas of stories I want to use, but that's almost the easiest kind of anthology. Um, but that's what I do full time. So, you know, also as in addition to consulting for tour.com on their short stories and novella program. So, I mean, that's my full time job and I love reading. So it's not a burden, except when I have to focus and I'm having trouble focusing. Yeah. I have too much to do. And that's when you say, okay, I'm working on this right now. Just do it. <laughs> that's what, that's what deadlines are for. That's what deadlines are for. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Time to focus on this one this minute.
0: Well, I have a weekly deadline of this show, so I have to read at least one book per week for this show, often two books because there's there's people's previous stuff to read.
1: Well, see, that's a lot. I mean, I don't read many novels. I just don't have the time. So, you know, for me, it's reading short fiction.
0: Okay, you're making me feel better then because I always feel guilty (laughs) that I think I should be able to read more. I should be able to read more. One of the reasons I don't get to speak to enough indie authors is because I'm still trying to build this platform by using, essentially cynically using the names of famous authors to kind of get mm-hmm. some some platform. And um, I really want to do a whole thing for indie authors, but I just can't find the time. So um, my Patreon listeners are helping me with that, and, and it is coming together. But one day I'll get a big corporate sponsor, and, and it will all be fine. Good. But how you do it, I, I have no idea. Because with something like the Best of the Year, you must have to read every standalone collection all the major zines I mean it, it must be a massive undertaking
1: well with single author collections I don't reread the stories I've read and they usually only have one or two new stories so that's not horrible anthologies are more every year and that gets tougher and tougher to cover but I also have three readers right now um okay one in California who who I send the online things that I don't have the time for I don't think will have material like Lightspeed and um, sometimes anthologies that I'll send her online that, that I got e-files of. Um, then I have two readers in on the East Coast. to have one who reads print magazines for me that probably won't have horror in them or that I think are not are unlikely to have good horror. Mm-hmm. Um, in, uh, sorry, magazines like Analog and the Hitchcock magazines and and Akashic Noir, noir series, which is a terrific series, but there's rarely horror in it. It's usually crime and mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have another reader in New Jersey who I who never comes into the city, and I send her anthologies that I think are probably not going to be anything. Either they're mixed genre, or they're they don't look that interesting. Okay. <laughs> Um, so yeah so I have like three people helping out but it's a drop in the bucket I mean seriously yeah. you know <laughs> I have piles of stuff all over the place at this point
0: in the year what a great job though just to read horror for a living that's living the dream
1: well yes it is fun yes yeah. <laughs> I can't disagree
0: I mean okay well that's actually a good point to jump in because I'm going to ask you some questions that you've probably been asked before but I think a lot of my listeners may have not heard you interviewed before, so it would be remiss of me not to ask them. Okay. To start off, you're unquestionably the foremost editor of anthologized horror stories. It it's, goes without question, but that is a quite unique position to hold. And I suppose to start off the conversation, what got you into this game? Which game
1: editing or horror because i've done i've been I,
0: well the word where they came together, I suppose
1: well, I've been reading fantastic fiction and science fiction fantasy and horror since I was a kid um, once I realized I couldn't be a veterinarian or didn't want to be a veterinarian, which is what I originally wanted to do, then I realized it would be a really bad field for me, number one, because I hate math and I'm not great in science, and i would I would be with dying animals all the time, so okay, veterinarian's out <laughs> um. I love, because I love reading, I thought, you know, what kind of job can I get reading? And I worked in actually science, uh, rather in mainstream book publishing for several years before I got to Omni. Omni Magazine was my first magazine job. And it was the first full-time job I got um, working with science fiction and fantasy. Before that, I had done some reading for Book of the Month Club, Science Fiction Book Club, Dell Books, and um, Ace Books but I wasn't ever in the actual field of science fiction. So that was my first job with a magazine. I was associate fiction editor for a year and a half, then became fiction editor, and I edited a bunch of mostly science fiction. I was not supposed to buy horror, but as time went on, I bought fantasy and horror. <clears throat> but I've always loved horror. Oh, and the thing is I started anthologies that were would not conflict with my job, my full-time job at Omni. So I thought horror would be a good compromise you know because i wouldn't be having a conflict so that's kind of how i got into editing horror anthologies at all um jim frankel who was someone who had read for adele books he was the one who came to terry winling and me about doing a year's best fantasy in horror i would do the horror Terry would do the fantasy and we started that that was i think 86 or 87 and so i got more and more into horror as that continued because i was reading more and more horror but i still had my job at omni Till 1996, I think. And then I created a a website called Event Horizon Science Fiction, Fantasy, Horror, which included stories of all those genres. And then I worked for Sci Fiction for six years and also published, you know, bought whatever I wanted there science fiction, fantasy, or horror. But the anthologies, a bunch of them were fantasy with Terry Wendling. But when I was doing them solo, I did a few science fiction anthologies, uh, Vanishing Acts," which was uh, uh, Endangered Species, and uh, let's see what else. I did Alien Sex and Off Limits, which were both science fiction about gender, Uh, and they were dark. I mean, I've always kind of swam towards the dark side, (laughs) (laughs) swam, the dark side in my reading, even science fiction. I've been doing this now for 31 years, I realize, reading for a best horror anthology. So, you know, if you ask me questions before then, I'm kind of ignorant about the field to some extent, to the history. I mean, I know what's out there, but I didn't read a lot of it. Um, but it's only really in the last 31 years. I know for some people, it's like, oh, I'm only 30 years old, so that's now. But, you know, for a lot of people, um, you know, that's what I've been doing for 31 years. And it's mostly the short horror field. I'm not that cognizant of the novel. 'Cause I've never had time okay. to read that many. So that's basically it. And that's basically my whole career <laughs> up to now. But I do actually edit I do acquire science fiction, fantasy, and horror for Tor.com and the novella series. I don't only acquire horror for Nightfire.
0: Right. You you know, you mentioned loads of the genres that you've mentioned fantasy, science fiction, and, and one of the things that, you know, has come up again and again on this podcast is how malleable and permeable those genre definitions are mm-hmm. but in your case it's kind of horror with a capital h and stuff so what what i'm asking is when you come to to put together a horror collection like the best of
1: mm-hmm.
0: what what is the criteria for you for it to be a horror story as opposed to a fantasy story or a science fiction story what are you looking for
1: well, it has to be dark enough for me to consider it horror. I mean, there's a lot, there's science fiction horror, science fiction slash horror as a subgenre. Um, some people don't consider anything horror unless it's supernatural. I mean, they don't consider mm. horror psychological at all, which I think is ridiculous. But just step aside, stepping aside for a second, my all my anthologies, my original anthologies, my theme anthologies, I'm able to mix more with some dark fantasy. But for the best horror, I do have to make the judgment. This to me is horror. This is not dark fantasy. This is dark enough to consider as horror. I have been on panels talking about what's the difference. It's tonal. It's like how dark is this material. It, dark fantasy can have horrific events in it and bad people, but it's a different ending. It's a different feel to it. What I say, what I to me, I love horror, but I cannot ever imagine. Describing horror as exuberant, and yet I can just you know I can just plenty of dark fantasy is exuberant. Mm-hmm. It's just a different tone, I think. And um, with horror, to me, if it's a really happy ending and everyone lives happily ever after, that's not horror. I mean, yes, okay. things can be and neutrally people survive physically and even psychologically, but there's an emotional cost, and that's not what you see in most dark fantasy. So that to me is a difference, I guess.
0: I like that emotional cost because I always have, I've got this emerging thing. I actually wrote an article um, recently for for Becky Spratford and her mm-hmm. 31 days of Halloween thing where I talked about being a horror fan and I came, in, in the in the process of writing this article, I came to the realization that in a lot of people's eyes, I'm not a horror fan. What I am is okay. I, I'm a fan of writers like like Stephen King and Michael Marshall Smith, who basically write quite warm hearted tales, but with a, a horrific. Not ban- always.
1: I mean, sometimes. I mean, <laughs> I mean Michael Marshall Smith um, writes wonderful horror stories, and sometimes even funny horror stories that mm-hmm. I usually don't like. I mean, I usually do not. Like, usually <clears throat> funny horror doesn't work for me. But once in a while, right. I mean, Michael Marshall's Shit Happens is one of my favorite stories. Yeah. I published that mm-hmm. originally in The Devil in the Deep. And I reprinted it multiple times because I think it's really, really funny. And it's also really horrific. I mean, it's totally horrific. But he's able to inject humor in it into it. And he does that yeah. with some of his work. And, of course, King does everything. I mean, King can write anything from science fiction, fantasy, dark fantasy to horror, you know, and that's a lot of writers can do that. I mean, there are writers who are whose work is not malleable, but very varied, very varied in what they can do and want to do. It depends on the story they're telling.
0: I think what I'm getting at is when you say when you use that phrase emotional cost, Mm -hmm. that for me is the perfect phrase that kind of gets me off the hook. Okay, because. I often think that the horror stories I read aren't really horror stories, the ones that are really close to my heart, mm-hmm. but they are all, all the stories I love also do come with a real weight of emotional cost. So I think you've given me a way back into, uh, <laughs> into being a committed horror fan. Yeah, yeah, sure.
1: Okay, good. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, which is as a, as a host of a horror podcast, is probably quite a good thing. <laughs> you said there that, you know, it's all about feel and tone and almost in a way, a kind of gut feeling about these stories. If you're relying so much on personal taste, how do you avoid the risk of of creating quite homogenous collections? Do you almost kind of go against your own instincts or against your own taste sometimes just for variety?
1: No, I guess it's probably subconscious. I don't consciously do that. But I think subconsciously I must. You know, I try to read as widely as I can. I of course have a bias toward what I like and what I what doesn't work for me. Um, my tastes have probably changed over 31 years, and you know, looking back, it was interesting um, when I did, uh, for example, "Darkness" was that the first one, "Darkness: Two Decades of Modern Horror," because I went back to my early years best and picked stories that stayed with me, and you know, so I was reading, reading other stories that I that I may have loved, you know, 30 years ago, but realized they didn't work for me anymore or weren't as, well, they just weren't as memorable as I, they, you know, they didn't, they weren't as powerful for me as they were when I first read them. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, what I've discovered over the last five years is that the choices I've made have become much more, much more of a parody, at least in gender than they ever were before. And I think partly it's more women are writing horror, you know, having been in the field for 30, well, for more than 31 years, but when I started doing a year's best, um, there were far fewer women writing horror than there are now. And now in the last five years or more, you know, there are many more. And every year I find, I, I find stories by people who I've either never heard of or have heard of but never published before. And to me, that's heartening. It means there are new people coming into the field all the time who are... Really good, um, but I don't deliberately go out and say oh, I'm going to pick this kind of story. You know, action. There, there's certain kinds of stories that I really like, and I realize, oh, good. You know, let me find. I mean, I don't look for them, but I'm happy when I find them. Like, I love stories that take place in mountains. You know, and it's like, I, or okay. cold. I really in Arctic or the Antarctic. But I don't go out looking for that. I don't go out looking and say, oh, I've got to find that kind of a writer. I have to find a story but this kind of writer. That's not how I do it. And I think just because I try to cover everything that I know is available, I keep myself open. You know, it's not an agenda. But, of course, it is subjective. You know, there's the stories I like, that I love, and that stay with me even after reading them over and over. And sometimes I, I, even now, you know, there are stories that I didn't take for my year's best that I regret not taking. And I should have taken that story. I really, cause it's still with me, you know, and I should have taken that, but that's the way it goes. Yeah.
0: Is there anything that comes to mind? Is like the one that got away?
1: Well, yes, but I'm not going to talk about it because, you know, <laughs> I mean, I talked about it privately to someone and said, and I said, don't tell, don't tell the writer that I said that because it, might upset them or might make them happy. I don't know that that's their story stayed with me. And I realized I probably should have taken it that year. And I just didn't, I'm not sure why. Yeah. but No, I'm not going to name stories or names. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there are also stories that I can't get because of who controls the rights. I mean, I've tried to get Karen Russell's stories in the past. Um, oh, anyway, I'm trying to remember one about spinning. It was one about, um, Spinning the reels, something about spinning the reels, but it it was really creepy and I loved it. But I couldn't get it because you know her publisher controlled the rights and the sub rights people are unreasonable. You can't do it at the last minute, and they want a you know thousand bucks for a story that I can pay two hundred fifty dollars for. So that so stories like that you don't get. So those are the ones that got away only because the because the author sold their rights away basically. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. the same thing happened. There was a China medieval story I wanted. I can't remember what for. And I couldn't get it because the they, rights people don't understand publishing at all when it comes to, you know, short stories.
0: Yeah, I find it unfathomable that people wouldn't want it to have as wide an audience as possible because it, it's like, a, you know, if anything, it's going to call you... Because I've never, I've never read much Karen Russell. I've read Lambia, but I read a great story in one of your collections. I'm much more likely to go and buy that collection that it's from. Why would anyone not want that to happen? You well, know, that's it's not the, because she... That's the ecology of publishing. Because her really. agent
1: sold, the to, you know, sold all the rights to the book publisher. I try to tell genre people who sell to mainstream publishers now, do not let them buy all the rights, or no one will ever reprint your story again. And they don't listen, and so no one can reprint their story because they can't afford it.
0: You know, well, you mentioned a minute ago that every year you come across writers who you've never heard of or never published before mm-hmm. and stuff, and and I, I was looking at the contents page for uh, Best of Volume Thirteen because just so listeners know. By the time this episode goes live, that will be out in the U.S. Yes, uh, and it's, it's out. supposed
1: to be published, I think, next week. I can't remember. Anymore. Yeah. I've been waiting so long, I don't even remember. <laughs> I keep thinking it's out already because people are showing copies. It's just like, no, it's not out yet.
0: <laughs> I believe it's the 17th, and this will go live on the 18th. Oh, good. Um, and, okay. it, and, it, and it's out in the U.K. in January. Okay. Okay. Um, so I haven't read it yet, but I've got the t- table of contents. And whilst there are really household names, or at least names that are familiar in households like mine, mm-hmm. you've got you know, Katrina Ward, you've got Stephen Graham Jones in there, people like that. There are so many authors and, and writers who I've never heard of. Now, that could be my ignorance, probably is. But when you're putting together a collection like that, do you have one eye on... I don't know the desire or the responsibility to promote newer voices in the genre,
1: no, but I do have an eye on that I have to have a few names or my or my publisher will kill me, you know, I mean, I am aware that uh oh, I hope that I get some names that will sell the anthology to people who don't yeah. you know, but as far as the new thing, i don't <clears throat> no, I just don't think that way. it's just the stories I love the best i mean i'm I'm really pleased. I mean, every year in my summary, I've been in the last several years. I say these stories. These I have stories by people by these people who have never published before or are not aware of mm. it before or whatever. And it it pleases me. I'm really glad that that's what comes up by the end. I have to assume it's all subconscious because I don't. I mean, I don't go after that.
0: So you, it's the story at face value. It's
1: always a story. Yeah, it's a story. I just love what I love.
0: I will move on in a second from the um, okay. <laughs> the, the best of because it, I think in some ways your, your more niche collections are, are even more interesting. But I'm going to ask you two questions, a very broad one and then one that you're either not going to answer or you're going to really get angry at me for asking you. <laughs> so, you know, you said yourself 31 years doing best of anthologies over a decade doing the specific best of horror mm-hmm. anthology. They kind of present a panoramic insight into the development of horror in, in this century. I suppose what I'm asking is, have you noticed trends? And I'm not talking about zombies or vampires mm-hmm. flitting in, in and out of Vogue. I mean, that, that shit happens constantly. Right. I'm talking sort of deeper than that in the texture. Has horror gotten darker or lighter or more pessimistic or the opposite? What have you noticed as the, the world's gone to hell in a handcart? What's horror done?
1: it's brought in different cultures. I'm not getting a different texture, really. Um, I mean, there is more political, overtly political fiction out there. I don't think it's necessarily horror, and I don't think it's necessarily good. I mean, I I really don't like overtly political fiction. I find it boring, unless it's hidden, you know, unless it's disguised, I guess. Um, But what I do think has been happening is that writers from other cultures are writing in English or being published in English um, and bringing their experiences. Some of them are immigrants or so some of them from other countries who are finding, who are experiencing racism or um, jingoism and, you know, just all the bad isms um, against mm-hmm. them per, themselves personally and their, their voices are being heard and they're creating really interesting work. And that's happening certainly in the last five years. Um, and to me, that's interesting. I may not have chosen many stories that reflect that, but I am aware of it. And I think some of those writers are doing really interesting work, whether or not in short fiction, but maybe novella length.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at, you know, if you ask me to pre- tra- pre- predict trends, I am Cannot. I cannot. I have no, I never have any idea what's going to happen in fiction in the next year (laughs) or two. Yes. There'll probably be a lot of more plague stories, but if they're just overtly, I mean, the thing is, when something happens as big as COVID, you can't ignore it in contemporary fiction anymore. It has to be part of the fabric of the story or it's, just weird fantasy, you know, it's like, Oh, this is not mm-hmm. our world, because this happened for two years. We were all inside, for, you know? So I think fiction writers, not only genre, but all fiction writers are going to have that problem or having that problem. How do you deal with it in your fiction? The same thing. I mean, this is a more positive thing in a way, but think what happened to all the science fiction writers who were writing about other planets. And now that we're at these other planets, will we be able to study these other planets and realize oh that Venus couldn't be like that no one could live on Venus like that you have to have new ideas of how to deal with this reality so it's you know this kind of thing and certainly COVID and the political situation in various countries and the march toward fascism perhaps or authoritarianism you can't totally ignore it and you shouldn't but also as I said for me I prefer my fiction not overtly political you know I mean I want a good story yeah. and if you know and but every piece of fiction has a political point of view and that's fine but don't I don't think that should get in the way of entertaining slash enlightening whatever you know it's got to be part of the mix for, for me to enjoy it and that's in any genre
0: yeah I mean I agree with you I mean the, the whole rise of Social horror—the phrase "social horror" really. Well, all horror me is social. Horror's always been social. Exactly <laughs> that. Yeah. So
1: how can you say it's not?
0: <laughs> yeah. So Jordan Peele made Get Out, which is a fantastic film in its own right, and then mm-hmm. very recently I interviewed James Han Matz about his novel Reprieve, which is immediately being called the Get Out of Twenty Twenty One, just because it's about prejudice, essentially. Uh-huh. And, it's, called and the it's, Reprieve? it's also a great. It's called Reprieve. Yeah. Reprieve. Mm-hmm. I, I described it as being a Jonathan Franzen novel with, with blood and guts and chainsaws. Basically, it's a kind mm-hmm. of state of the nation novel about prejudice and racial fetishization. But it centers on this extreme full contact escape room. It's very mm-hmm. clever.
1: Who's who's the author? I'm sorry. Who's the author?
0: It's um, an author called James Han Mattson.
1: Okay, I'm not sure. Tr- for all I know, I may have it in my when did it come out?
0: Uh, a few months ago if that might have been October.
1: Reprieve is the title? Yeah. All right let me see sorry I'm taking a quick look at my my uh, incoming list (laughs) my checklist of what's here I have it yes I have it came from William Morrow so yes I did get that so I'll try Desperately to read
0: it. It's also time. got it's got the best front cover of any book mm-hmm. uh, published this year as well. Anyway, but that that book was lauded as the new Get Out, which I just find such a redundant comparison because everything is. But and it comes back to the thing about social horror with a capital S, social horror. Right. It's like every everything since. Frankenstein onwards has been social in some way. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think when the, the the political apparatus starts to overwhelm the story, which it doesn't in Reprieve's mm-hmm. case, I'm not saying that, but when it does, that becomes problematic for me massively. Right. And I think people like Cassandra Caw and Stephen Graham Jones are doing it brilliantly because the commentary, for want of a better word, is laced throughout their stories, yes. but it never, ever gets in the way of the actual story itself. Right. It never feels like they've got an axe to grind that's more important than the story they've got to tell. Right? But it will be interesting to see where we go with COVID. I was speaking to Kim Newman a few weeks ago. who was saying he had to shelve an entire novel just because he couldn't face having to deal head on with COVID. So he went and wrote an historical novel instead.
1: Right. I can understand that. It, yeah. Yeah. Um I have a there's a novella that I acquired coming out that's it's about a plague but it's more about a misinformation plague and it's amazing. I mean it was written before this and it's by um Malcolm Devlin who um is
0: it called When We Wake Up or something yes, like that? Yes, and then I
1: woke up. Have you read it? And then it's I woke brilliant. Up. I mean I love it. No. I mean, he's on
0: my list of people to approach for this show are you giving it the uh the recommendation
1: well i bought the, a net, the novella so yes
0: <laughs> oh really yeah
1: you may want to i mean i acquired it for tour.com so you may i don't know when it's coming out but it's next year so you might want to wait a little while just a little
0: yeah <laughs> i've gone through the wrong publisher There, i just got to come straight to tour excellent right
1: yeah it's terrific yeah. it's really really disturbing and very moving okay. also you know, as it, it, it says, I mean, the first line or something, this is a love story. I think it's. he said it's a love story. And it kind of is. I mean, in a way, I mean, it's. It's interesting and it's definitely. Okay. But it's definitely pre-COVID it was written, but not pre-misinformation. <laughs> so in a way, it takes the misinformation of the last four years, you know, the four years before the current president <clears throat> and yeah. shows what can happen with that.
0: Well, then you've got Paul Tremblay's Survivor Song, which is incredibly yes. uncannily prescient, because that's about both misinformation and a play. Right.
1: And he <laughs> wrote that before also. And it's yeah. terrific. Yeah.
0: Um, right. So a minute ago, I told you I was going to ask you a question that might make you angry. Yes, so I was waiting okay. for that question.
1: I didn't think it was that right.
0: one. <laughs> you know, it's not. You know, you're know, you not You're not going to like this, okay. but I'm going to ask it anyway. All right. Think back over all of the the best ofs you've done. Mm-hmm. Right. One, one through 13. Is there one story that you think is the best you've ever published?
1: No, I'm not going to get angry, but I can't answer a question like that. There are too many that I've published or read over the years that I love and that I reread and I think are terrific. But there is no one story. I mean, that's that's why, you know, I know one of the questions is like, well, what one novel do you love the best? It's like, oh, please stop torturing me. I wouldn't get angry, but it's an impossible question to answer. There is no one story.
0: You don't have like Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, your version of that, that you think I found this absolute dark diamond of a story.
1: Yes, but not one. I mean, there are many stories that, as I tell people, if you want to know what my favourite stories of all time are, that are contemporary or see which stories i reprint over and over again those are the stories i love when i've reprinted it okay. at you know at the very least in a year's best and then maybe in another anthology and re- another reprint anthology it means i love that story but there are a lot of them
0: <laughs> talking scared is partnering with novelic the book app for people who want their suggestions from fellow readers not an algorithm Novelik is the perfect way to curate your TBR list, with real recommendations from fellow-minded readers broken down into genre, including, yep, horror and all adjacent delights. You can download Novelik for free on iOS or Android devices and get browsing right away, or join a book club for more in-depth chat on your favourite topic. The Talking Scared Club is up and running now for Patreon members. Try Novelik for a nicer way to find your next read. Well, I've got some stories to talk about that I've adored from your collections this year, so we'll get to these other more (laughs) more niche titles. So, well, speaking of niche, actually, some of your anthologies are wonderfully niche. So I was looking back over your back catalogue, because I haven't read even half. I mean, you've got so many. And you've got, like, Tales of Alien Sex, and the doll collection, mm-hmm. and the one that, forgive me, is it Dark Feathers that's all about avian horror? Um,
1: bl- uh, blah, blah. Black, Black Feathers. Feathers. Black I wanted Feathers. to call it something else, but I couldn't because someone used it. No, Black Feathers, yeah. Okay. Avian horror. <laughs> Where do you get
0: an idea like Alien Sex or Dolls or, or avian horror for an anthology? And how do you know there'll be enough substance to to make it?
1: Well, Alien Sex, first of all, that was that and blood is not enough for the first two half original anthologies i have edited um alien sex was made up the first half of it was made up of stories i couldn't take for omni because i felt because i thought they were too sexual and they wouldn't fit in with the rest of the mix of the magazine um and basically my edit my agent and i called it the alien sex anthology but i wanted to call it off limits okay so it was the Alien Sex anthology, and then someone bought it and said, "It's I love Alien Sex." I said, "That's not the name of it." I said, "Yeah, we love it." So that's how that title came about. And that was half reprint, and half originals. And then I, years later, several years later, I did Off Limits, which was the ori- which is second volume, which was all mostly originals with I think maybe one or two reprints. I can't remember, or maybe it was all originals. And that one didn't sell at all. Alien Sex sold all over the place and did very well, um, even though it had a horrible hardcover. really, and a horrible paper, both covers were awful, actually. (laughs) But anyway, um, but Off Limits was actually, to me, a stronger anthology, but much more downbeat. I mean, it was very, it's very dark. And it was never meant to be about aliens. I mean, it was about gender relations, actually, more. Uh I mean, there are aliens in in both books, but not, that's not the important part. As far as <clears throat> the doll collection. I collect dolls' parts, doll heads. I collect Kakisha dolls. I have doll heads over there. I have doll body parts. So I'm, I love you know. I collect dolls. I collect three face dolls. So it was natural that eventually I would do a book on dolls, but it's also got um, photographs of dolls of my own and of a couple of friends. So yeah, usually they're my ideas, but sometimes the a publisher comes up with the idea lovecraft unbound my first Lovecrafting anthology i came up with the title but oh a young editor i'm blank who i'm friendly with who i can't remember the name oh rob simpson he was the one who came up with the idea of dark horse books at the time and i came up with the title you know and um so it depends the shirley jackson one the publisher i actually considered the idea of doing a jackson anthology um At ReaderCon, ReaderCon, the Jackson Awards are awarded. So I thought, oh, maybe I should do, you know, that would be interesting. But I didn't want to deal with trying to contact the estate because I was afraid they'd say we hate the idea. So I didn't do anything with it. And not only less than a month later, I went to the World Con in Dublin and um, talked to a publisher and tried to figure out something for me to do for them. And the first few ideas fell flat. And then they came to me and said, Hey, you want to do a Shirley Jackson inspired anthology? And I said, yeah, sure. And I never told them that, Oh, I thought about that a a month ago, but I didn't do anything with it. So yes. Um, So sometimes they come from publishers, you know, my reprint anthologies with Tachyon usually in consultation with Jacob Weissman, the publisher, which is interesting because I can swear he gave me the idea. And he says, he doesn't think he did. I said, yes, you did. Because I would never have come up with the idea of body horror on my own. You had to have, but he didn't, well, neither, I can't find proof of it in any in email. So I have no idea who came up with the idea for that one.
0: Okay. So go jumping in points of body okay. horror. Okay. Because I was kind of surprised that you hadn't done a big body horror collection already.
1: Well, it's not my interest. I mean, I'm not interested in extreme horror really. And so it would never occur to me to do it, which is why I'm sure Jacob came up with the idea. <laughs> um, But I was careful in my curation of what I wanted in the book. I mean, there's certainly all kinds of body horror in there, and some of it's pretty grisly. Um, But I also had the idea of... I didn't have an agenda, but I certainly... Basically, I picked the stories that I liked, even though they were extreme. And some of them were Mm -hmm. stories that I had published before, like The Transfer by Ed Bryant, for one example. And um, I would have used... Claire Barker's Jacqueline S, but I've reprinted that at least a couple of times and I didn't want to use it again.
0: There's one story in there called Toother.
1: Oh, gosh, yeah. By yeah.
0: by Terry Dowling, which, I mean, Terry Dowling is as a, a knack for nightmarish imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, his book, Clowns at Midnight, left me all kind of heebie-jeebie. <laughs> but, um, but this Toother, if you have any kind of, of dental phobia or, or, or any kind of, you know, Anything like that at all? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a nightmare, isn't it? It's, it's oh, yeah. absolute nightmare fuel. Well, you know,
1: there's another story like that that Chris Fowler wrote years ago that I took my years, but I don't remember the title. But I wanted a different. I took a different story by Chris, a fashion one. One of the the look. I think it was called.
0: I'm glad you mentioned fashion because when you use the phrase body horror, a lot of people think that it's just going to be about you know, essentially disease. I think is what a lot of people mm-hmm. think it is. It's just disease, but you're quite careful to to really widen the scope of of what constitutes body horror, yes, and there's everything in there from you know physical transformation sometimes even into other creatures, and then you've got the, you've got possession and you've and you've got fashion as something that is mm-hmm. tantamount to body horror, the way that we adorn ourselves or the way that we treat our bodies or commodify our bodies. Mm-hmm. Did you set out with a specific agenda to widen the scope of what body horror could be?
1: A handful of stories I knew would be perfect for the anthology. And when I got my small handful of stories that were covering different aspects, I went to writers who I thought either I know they write body horror or I suspect they might. And then, I, I mean, also what I did is first I made a list of all the stories that I was considering using, okay? Over the years, you know, from doing the year's best, there were stories I remembered that, okay, this is body horror, Mm -hmm. this is body horror, and I made a list, basically. And then I dropped things out of the list because it couldn't be that big. You know, I mean, it's big, but I had to make sure it wasn't too big. So I probably, you know, there were certain writers I went and said, okay, send me some interesting stories of yours, body horror. And uh, like Lucy Taylor and Richard Kristen Matheson, those are people who I probably said, send me something. And the others, you know, either I knew they existed or I suspected they existed. You know, so I asked for, can I see your story, blah, blah. Can you know, I see this story? It's a combination. It's a combination of what I remember liking from anthologies or collections or whatever, or having published them before. And the likely
0: possibilities well, even even if it is subconscious, as you say, it has definitely led to a very, very varied wide take on the topic. And and that, that's quite a treat with something like body horror because it means that almost everyone reading this book will find something that horrifies them.
1: Oh, I think. And also they'll probably find things they're not aware of. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd have to go to my email and say, well, what did I ask people for?
0: Well, as interesting as body horror is... Time is running on and I'm far more enthralled by your Shirley Jackson collection because it genuinely is my favourite of the year. It's the one horror book that I read on holiday because I <laughs> I was having a break and I, I I dived into it. I'm fascinated by it and amazed by it because it worked, because I'm not sure it should have done. Why not? <laughs> because of the the methodology you set yourself, because you're quite clear about this in the introduction. Shirley Jackson is a, I find, a very kind of elusive, hard to pin down author in terms of what she actually is and does. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you actively set out to ask people not to riff on her stories or on her biography. And you, you say in the introduction that you wanted your contributors to, quote, distill the essence of her work. That's a very effusive. Kind of, you know, um, kind of attack plan, and I suppose what and it it does work, and you can feel Jackson in every story. But I suppose to start off with, you know, what is that essence that you want people to distill? What what makes something a Shirley Jackson story?
1: Well, there are different types of Shirley Jackson stories, but you know, a lot of them center on family. Others are on the evil that lurks slightly below the surface, and the mob mentality, Um, you know, but she was a different kind of writer. I mean, she also wrote nonfiction about her family. You know, she was very, she was pretty prolific and wrote all kinds of stuff. Um, I was aiming for the more weird aspect of Jackson, you know, not all of it was, is weird fiction, but that's what I was looking for. And I, so, I mean, it was basically dependent on who I asked, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And surprisingly, a few, uh, at least one person who I thought, would love would maybe like to write books said she never read shirley jackson i wasn't interested you know she oh, didn't have an affinity for her work and which kind of surprised me um but it's like okay <clears throat> and then other people i i got some outliers and i'm not sure how i'm probably because of just mentioning it to my to the people who i would think that wouldn't be able to write something mm-hmm. and they did like Cassandra Caw um she's I'm not sure she's lived in the United States I mean right now she's in Canada she's Malaysian and she's lived in around the world but I can't remember if she's actually lived in the States but she was interested and I think her story is very Jacksonian
0: mm. um it's the one that is the most direct riff on on Jackson's work because it's kind of like a transposed version of the lottery isn't it
1: Yes, kind of. (laughs) Um, So, you know, so you never know what you're going to get from people who you ask. And I don't remember. I mean, it's probably because I was working with Cass on one of her novellas or or a story, and it came up. And she probably said, oh, let me write something. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure that's how it came up. (laughs) You know, and other people to me were natural. I mean, it wasn't until I got Mary Rickert's story that I realized how Jacksonian a lot of her work is you know, aside from the one that I took, a lot of her work is like that. I mean, and it's like, wow, I had not had realized that. I mean, on the other hand, Kelly Link is definitely Jacksonian, and I knew that. And Elizabeth Hand isn't, well, some of her work is. And the thing is, Liz is a good friend, and I'm always asking her stories, and this is the first time she's actually written one for me. You know, she usually doesn't have time to write short fiction, but they always end up in someone else's anthologies and i get ticked off so it's like wow you wrote one you finished one great yeah. <laughs> you know so i mean you know i went after people who i thought could write something i'm not sure what made me think stephen graham jones could do it um and he did you know so some people aren't the people who i would think were influenced by jackson and they wrote really great stories anyway I mean, Richard Cadry, of all people. And his story is extremely Jacksonian. But then there are stories I rejected that didn't work, you know, whatever. And there are a lot of people who didn't come through who just... I mean, John Langdon's story is, like, I think the shortest he's ever written. Mm -hmm. And it perfectly captures the voice or the tone of Jackson, I think. And Josh Mallerman, he's been writing for me, and he's really good at... each story is very different and I really think Special Meal worked really well.
0: Well that, that is an incredible story because I mean it's essentially about a kind of dystopian future where where math is outlawed. It's
1: forbidden. Yeah, right? yeah.
0: And it, it's it's both darkly funny and genuinely horrifying. I mean it's it's got yes. a kicker of a conclusion. And and that's yeah. one that's one of those stories where you, you you read it and you just think, How has anybody had this idea? You know, there, there are certain stories that just baffle me <laughs> how anyone even got to it in the first place. Yeah. But then again, I'm, I'm currently reading Josh's uh, Ghoul and the Cape, which is, as far as I can tell, the closest thing to Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake or Gravity's Rainbow that, that we've got in contemporary horror.
1: Oh, really? Is, is that a new novel?
0: It's been released in special edition to begin with, and I'm, I'm sure it will get a wider release, but it, it literally reads like Pynchon or Beckett oh, writing cool. kind of absurdist yeah. horror. So you never know with Josh. So even with just a few names we've mentioned there, it's obvious that there's lots of great writers and and good stuff in When Things Get Dark. But there are two stories in particular that I want to ask you about. Mm -hmm. And you'll have to forgive me because I don't really have a question about these stories. It's more just my excuse to talk about them and see if you've got anything to say, because they spoke to me so powerfully and so vividly that... I just want to mention them and and see what you say. I I, I can't formulate a question about them. Mm -hmm. I just loved them so much. But anyway, the two questions, the the two stories in question are Kelly Link's Skinder's Veil and and the quite incredible Tiptoe by Laird Barron. I love those stories. Over to you. What, what did you think of them? Because you put them right at the end of the, of the anthology, which to me is a sign. Of- I love
1: them both. I mean, to me to not have a Kelly Link story and a Shirley Jackson anthology would have been a horrible situation, but you know, she's doesn't write that much short fiction anymore either. And here she wrote a novella. I think it's, um, it's really beautifully written. It's really interesting. It's very much creepy in a beautiful way. Um, it, it, I love that story for what it is. Um, is it horror? I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> um, Tiptoe, on the other hand, is to me, I think, one of Lair's more interesting horror stories, and to me, it's the most impressive in a couple of years. I mean, it's amazing. I think it's <laughs> it's utterly creepy, and I'm I love it. Yeah, yeah. So it was no question yeah. of me taking either of the stories, and I just thought they were both terrific well what else do you want to hear from me about it? I don't know
0: <laughs> well i I suppose I just wanted to kind of like shout them out
1: I mean with I mean tiptoe goes on and on and on, and you suddenly realize I mean it's like, oh my God, it's like, oh, oh boy, oh my God, you know, yeah. and the last bit is like the kicker, and it but even without that, it's all pretty damn creepy
0: <laughs> hmm. yeah, I'll um. They're both stories where I, de- I described them to my wife and, and mm-hmm. on social media as like doing a jigsaw piece perfectly and you've made the picture, mm-hmm. but you've got three pieces left uh-huh. over so that like the meaning is almost more than the story can allow. There, are, there is too much meaning to really... It's not, that, it's not that you're not given enough information to go on. You're given so much information uh, and so many competing mm-hmm. meanings the, the the actual final picture is bigger than the story can allow. Mm. Like, for example, in 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 Skinders Vale, Kelly Link's story, it's, it's about this house where someone goes to stay there, house sitting under some very extraordinary yes. rules, mm-hmm. and some very odd people come to stay. And there's there's a there...
1: and things, not necessarily people, but yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, indeed. And there's a there's a detail dropped right at the start. He's described by his housemate, the, the main character, as being somebody who is, if he was a house he would always be outside himself. Mm-hmm. And then the story ends with somebody getting to a house and not being allowed in. And I'm like, am I supposed to draw some symbolic meaning from that? Or am I not? I just don't know. Uh-huh. And it's the same with Laird's story. Like the, the possible mm-hmm. permutations of meaning in that about this father who may probably is a monster, but what kind of monster? And like, there's mm-hmm. so much you can take from it. I, I I haven't read short stories like that in years it, they left me absolutely mm. astounded. Good. So, lad, if, you, if you're hearing this, man, I absolutely <laughs> adored it, and please come and talk to me about it. Yeah. Anyway, we are getting towards the end of our our time here because I don't like to kind of indulge your patience or the listeners too much. But I'm gonna I'm gonna finish off with uh, just a few quick questions. You mentioned you don't like doing predictions. I'm not going to ask you to. I was going to ask you to predict who was going to break out next, but I won't do that. Instead, I'll ask you a question that is more about your general opinions. Okay. Obviously, I'm always on the lookout for new people. I always want my listeners to hear about mm-hmm. new people. Is there anyone you've come across in your recent work or whenever that may not be that well known that you think people should be aware of?
1: Well, it depends on what you mean by well known and who is and isn't, you know. <clears throat> I think cast. Cassandra Coy is going to become more well-known. I mean, her her um, nothing but blackened teeth has made a big splash, mm-hmm. and I think it's uh, terrific. She's got another novella coming out, I think, in 23 that we just announced, um, Salt grows Heavy, which is about really vicious mermaids. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, really pretty vicious. Yeah, there are people whose work I like, and I hope that it gets more popular. Um, I mean, I hope Priya Sharma writes another fantastic novella. I mean, I loved her the work that I've published by her, um, and I'd like to see you know more work from her. And I'm pushing her. Um, I just actually acquired a novella by a new writer who's not totally new. I mean, I never knew that who they were before, but until like someone recommended their work, um, S.L. Coney, C. O. N. E. Y wrote this wonderful novella called wild spaces it won't be out till like 2023 either okay it's as, but as it's described i think um robin mccann's boy's life meets lovecraft
0: oh my god you've won me over
1: <laughs> yeah i mean it's really amazing it's just called wild spaces and as i said it won't be out for another <laughs> two years a year and a half but um hopefully that'll get a lot of attention I don't, you know, I don't know who's well-known and who's not. I mean, you know, Thomas Olde um, Heuvelt from Who's Dutch. Um, his first novel, Hex, was terrific. Yeah. It was a, one of the scariest. It was has an amazing scary witch in it. It's being reissued by Nightfire, maybe out already. And there, he's got another novel, Echo, Echo. that I haven't read that, I'm, that I hope, is, have you gotten it? I think it just came out, um, and I'm looking forward to that. It's
0: not out yeah. I'm, I'm like, in conversation to get Thomas on the show in the spring. I think it's out then. Yeah,
1: I mean, he's um, articulate. You should get him on. Yeah. But, you know, I loved his first novel, and I'm looking forward to the second one. Okay. But it's like, like who's well-known and who's not? I mean, you know, what does that mean? Um, I mean, they're the people I work with and whose work I love and would like to see them get better known. Yeah, I'm glad Stephen Graham Jones is finally... Winning all the awards and getting all the attention and selling books. I mean, he just won the Mark Twain Award for The Only Good Indians.
0: I know, it's incredible.
1: Obviously, our people know who he is, but outside, they're starting to get to know who he is, and I think that's good.
0: I mean, from what I've heard, you are entirely to thank for uh, The All Good Indians because. I'm not.
1: I don't know. I mean, that's embarrassing. It's like, no. (laughs)
0: <laughs> he was—he was telling me that you basically demanded he write something for you, and, and it birthed Indians. So
1: well, that yeah, I've been pushing. Well, I've been—I've been harassing him for years to write things for me. So yes, the only good Indians didn't work for tour for various reasons. But I mean, I couldn't have edited it because I'm not a novel editor. Okay, you know, I could give him a little bit of advice about it. Um, but Joe Monty is the one who I think really pulled it into shape. Yeah, but I mean, I love working with Stephen. I want to hope I can buy more novellas by him. I have another story of his coming out on um, Tour dot com. Uh, men, women, and chainsaws or something like that. Except that's kind of based on the there's, there's a, a um Carol, Carol Clover's Clover, yeah. uh, her, but his is called his story is called Men, Women, and Chainsaws. Yeah.
0: Okay. He does love yeah. his slashers. Yeah. He does love to take apart and deconstruct his slashers.
1: Oh, yeah. And there's another, um, I have a a novelette that I bought called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Reporter by Daniela Tomova, which is really weird. I mean, you said you hate zombies? No, I don't know. But anyway, it's it's about a reporter who's in the far north of Norway to cover a sled race that's um, led by zombies. I mean, it's just bizarre. Okay, It's really good. I mean, she's good, and I hope she'll write more stories for me, Daniela Tamatova. Okay. Well, you've given us a lot there.
0: To say you couldn't, you've given us a lot to, to bite on. So, so yeah. yeah. Well,
1: you know, it's like a little here and there. So, you know, and, and Kathleen Jennings, I mean, Kathleen Jennings' fly away was brilliant. I mean, she's known as an artist and she's just been writing short stories and novellas, you know, too. And we have, um, we have a couple of other novellas under contract that she's working on. You know, so that's good. I
0: keep hearing about Fly Away. I keep hearing good things about it.
1: It's so complex. It's so amazing. It's, I think I might call that dark fantasy rather than horror, but it's certainly got a lot of horrific elements in it. And it's terrific. It's really good. It's very Australian. And it's terrific.
0: (laughs) Very Australian. I like it.
1: It is. It's very Australian. Some things aren't, some things aren't. This one, it's a novella and it's imbued with the outback shall we say so in that case that sense is very australian i mean you could say that terry dowling's toother is very australian but in a whole different way you know it doesn't take place in the outback it's in the city mm-hmm. it's an urban center so it doesn't feel as australian as something like flyaway which takes place in the countryside yeah.
0: well you've mentioned a lot of books there which may have made may make my next question a bit redundant but i always ask it <laughs> so i have to ask it because it's, it's a tradition if you could recommend one book for my listeners to read, because you love it, what would it be mm-hmm. and why?
1: Well, I would go with something that just came out this year. Um, my Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones. His, his slasher, well, a lot of his novels and novellas are slashes. This one is about this fab- fabulous character, Jade, who's half indigenous and not doing well. She's on high school student Um, and she's obsessed with splatter movies to me is fascinating is of course steven's creation of this his creation he's really good at creating teenage Mm -hmm. girls i mean in my um in the only good indians he created this the hero teenage girl who plays basketball with the devil not exactly the devil but you know the the uh villain shall we say and um so anyway jade is this fabulous character who Is not only she's obsessed with serial killers and things and splatter and thinks, um, that her community is is being stalked by a serial killer, which it may be, uh, but she also writes uh, splatter one, I forget what it's called, uh, but she had a journal, Splatter 101, and each one talks about a movie, you know, Slasher 101. And I don't know. I've never seen any of these movies. I don't think I, I probably saw Halloween and that's it. I'm sure I didn't see any of the other. Really? But it's still fun. I mean, just like um, The Only Good Indians made me love watching a basketball game when I had no interest in basketball. Walter Tevis's The Queen's Gambit made me adore chess, even though I knew nothing about it. And, you know, certain writers can make you love something that is not in your wheelhouse but they're so good at writing about it that it brings it to life in such a way that you adore it and anyway so I would recommend people read that um all those books but <laughs> uh my heart of a chainsaw uh,
0: and if anyone reads that and wants to hear Stephen talk about it I think it was episode 54 of this podcast he, he came on to talk all about it so there you are mm-hmm. mm. that brings us finally to my last question Uh-oh. which is <laughs> simple but profound ellen datlow what truly scares you i
1: say this a lot and it is true but it sounds stale already is that fiction doesn't scare me you know it's real life politics and hate and that scares me more i'm now i'm wondering what does scare mean Actually, I haven't even talked about that. That's a whole new subject. I don't know what you mean by scaring because it doesn't, you know, they don't scare me. They horrify me. They make me maybe make my skin figuratively crawl, but not because I'm scared it's going to happen to me. I mean, what does scaring mean? What does it mean to you?
0: What does it mean to me?
1: (laughs) What do you mean by scare?
0: I wasn't necessarily talking about about what what in fiction scared you I mean to say that real life scares you more is perfectly valid in my eyes but I suppose by okay. by scare I, I think I do mean well I said you know written. no one, no one's thought of this before but no one's asked no, no one's asked me this question before I haven't really thought about it more and more I'll be honest more and more as I get older I am getting scared more easily and quite worryingly mhm more and more, when I read things which are overtly supernatural, despite not believing I have no spiritual life of any kind. I don't believe in God. Uh-huh. I don't believe in any kind of spiritual realm. I'm an arch pragmatist yet, but if I read something supernatural, particularly to do with possession mm-hmm. or uh, anything like like that loss of will, there is like a part of my brain that can't put it to bed when I've watched it. Okay. So things I watch as a kid like uh, Nat Ryan Elm Street if I watch again now, Mm -hmm. it plays on my mind way more. And it's not supposed to work that way. I'm supposed to have the rationale now to put it in a box, (laughs) but it's like I'm unfolding as I get older. So I suppose what scares Mm -hmm. me is, I suppose, anything that chips away at the security of how I understand the world to be.
1: Okay. I understand. I mean, for me, it's, I think, a loss of control. But, see, I don't find reading about fiction... Usually doesn't do that to me reading about it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just the idea of actually physically or mentally losing, you know, not being able to control, uh, loss of control over your happenstance, over your life, whatever. Well, um, that's
0: that's a great answer. I'm, oh, what, I, what
1: I've been reading, I've been reading, I, I realized I just read a story that I, was kind of about Alzheimer's, I think. And it's like, I'm sick of that. It's like, okay, so everyone my age or, or you know, between 20 years old, younger and older than me, well, 20 years younger than me in my age, there, is everyone thinking about Alzheimer's and do I have to read all these damn stories and watch movies about it? It's like, no, I don't want to, thank you. You know, yes, that scares me, but reading about it doesn't scare me, it bores me. <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah, I know that things really suck you know, and you have no mind, and I don't want to live that way, but you know, and I said, it's the real life possibility that scares me, not reading, not the fiction.
0: Well, well, most people just simply say, kind of, I don't know, spiders, or they go, my family dying, so at least we went a bit deeper with you. <laughs> so, right, to sum up, Body Shocks, your extreme body horror anthology, that's out now. When Things Get Dark, your Shirley Jackson anthology is out now, and I massively recommend it. You've got the best of the Year, Volume 13, out now in North America and in January in the UK. And Drawing a Breath, Screams from the Dark, your anthology of monstrous fictions, is out next summer, I believe. So there's an awful yes. lot of Ellen Datlow out in the world to read right now. So um, <laughs> Trying and, and, to
1: catch up. <laughs> yeah, and you've been a
0: very, very, very busy lady. So all I can say is thank you very much for talking Scared with me.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure.
0: Before we go any further, can we just take a moment to pick up on Ellen's collection of dull body parts? <laughs> she mentioned that so subtly, so under the radar, that it was only when editing that I thought, hang on a minute, that that requires consideration. <laughs> She did actually try to move her monitor to, to show me, but we couldn't make it work. And in some ways, I'm glad that I didn't see. I think it would have been anticlimactic. I, I like to imagine Ellen sitting in her very nice study. I've seen it. It's lovely. But I like to think of her there, writing whilst blank-eyed faces stare down from the walls and grasping plastic limbs reach for her from every surface. Could there be any more perfect scene for the curation of of horror? (laughs) Anyway, I hope you all enjoyed that conversation. I certainly did. There is a thrill, a kind of white-knuckle exhilaration to speaking to Ellen Datlow. It's the sure knowledge that she isn't going to sugarcoat or panda. And that's a frankness that's quite refreshing in the book world. Though I do wish she'd told me more about some of those stories that got away. Speaking of stories... The ones in her recent two collections are every bit as exceptional as as I made out. I'll be honest, just like Ellen, body horror isn't really my cup of tea. It's certainly not when the body horror is the essential part of the story. That often leaves me cold. My favourite body horror of recent years is Jeremy Robert Johnson's The Loop, and I suggest anyone who hasn't read that book does so immediately, and then listen to our conversation way back in the first few weeks of the show. But, but that's an aside, and, and it's the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, generally, body horror isn't my go-to thing. I like chills and spooks and macabre histories and urban legends and monsters in the woods, and I'm more of a terror than a horror man. But that said, if I'm going to read body horror, then some of the tales in Body Shocks are amongst the very best out there. There are genuine classics like Doo's Languid, Erotic, The Lake... And some stellar new stuff, like Cassandra Corr's take on the werewolf. The story's called The Truth That Lies Under Skin and Meat. Fantastic title, and honestly, the best lupine story I've read in ages. But the best of the bunch for me is Terry Dowling's "Tootha." That's the one I mentioned in the conversation with Ellen. And it's it's the story in that collection that best combines really squirmingly awful horror imagery with a compelling as hell narrative. It's about a serial killer who takes his victim's teeth, and that's awful enough, but the real horror is in what he's doing with them, and the fact that he takes them before the victim is dead. Ah, yeah, think about that. When it gets dark, the tales inspired by Shirley Jackson is much more my kind of thing, and I really do mean every single superlative that I threw at Ellen. It's the most ridiculously fertile bunch of stories and, and both individually and collectively they summon the elusive spirit of Shirley Jackson. That weird elliptical domestic space where the rules either don't apply or don't make sense. I think I've probably talked enough about it without going over it in more detail here. But if you do like either Shirley Jackson, short stories or uncanny fiction in general, then then do get a copy. The Kelly Link, Josh Malerman, and Liz Ham stories warrant the purchase alone. Christ, the Laird Baron story, Tiptoe, is easily the best I've read this year. I thought that Fawn by Joe Hill from his collection Full Throttle was the best I'd read. And then the very next book I read after that was When It Gets Dark. And Laird's story just melted my mind. It's so good. Like I say, it's like a jigsaw puzzle with too many pieces. So, I hope I'll convince you that these are books worth reading, and and that's the egregious praise over with for another week. As ever, I'm here, if you want to get in touch, you can email me directly at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, my regular haunt, at TalkScaredPod. I've actually built quite the community already, but if you listen and haven't yet said hi, well... Come and say hi. It's lovely to know who and where my listeners are. If you do like the show, then please rate and review and subscribe. I had a wonderful review from someone called My O Michael in the States. If you're listening to this, man, I know you say you're binging these episodes. If you get to this, thanks so much for that review. It literally made a very dreary, dismal day in the north of England a little bit brighter. If you've got a bit of spare cash and you want to support the show and help it grow, you can do so via Patreon. We're listed at patreon.com slash talking scared pod, or you can use the links in the show notes. You'll get bonus content, access to the digital book club and a lifelong exemption from any and all hexes going forward. Seriously, though, all contributions are massively appreciated. Otherwise, onward. Onward. As we roll on into the final bitter weeks of the year, I'm keeping the home fires burning. If you're in the UK and free the weekend of 26th November, I'll be at the UK Ghost Story Festival doing some live recording. If you're there, please do say hi. If you're not there, look if you can be there. I think tickets are still available. Next week on the show, I've got something a little different for you. Richard McLean-Smith from the Unexplained podcast will be joining me to talk about the mysterious, the spooky, and the book he wrote to complement the show. It's not been missed, and if you get the chance, I'd recommend having a listen to, to a few episodes of Unexplained to hear his unique style of atmospheric storytelling. Till then, though, format your manuscript, protect your copyright, address all mail to the editor, and think positive thoughts. Read good books, and remember, it's good To be scared.